Welcome to the Black Female Leader Podcast, guiding you to success in your life and biz. I'm your host, Marcia Felitas, the creator of MarciaFelitas.com. Hi there, this is Marcia Felitas from MarciaFelitas.com, and I'm so excited to introduce you to Nikita Mitchell, who currently serves as the Chief of Staff for the America's Consulting Team at Cisco Consulting Services. Here's a Black woman, Black queer woman, who's committed to speaking about authentic ethical leadership in a way that addresses the needs of marginalized communities. And uh, Nikita, I'm so glad that you do that. So so th- thank you for being on this podcast. I am so excited to be on the podcast. You're my very first podcast as well, Marsha. Oh, that's exciting. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about um, how you define leadership for yourself. Yeah, you know, so I just graduated from Berkeley um, with my MBA and I spent those two years, my intention with those two years was to grow and develop myself as a leader. And I think having come through that experience a lot more successful than I I think I thought I would be in the beginning, which is the most remarkable part for me in Mm. reflecting, is that leadership was really about showing up as my best self and helping others accomplish a shared goal. And I think in the past, my definition of leadership was just getting people to get things done. Mm. And I forgot about the piece that was most important. It was using the best parts of who you are and how you relate to people and how people are able to relate to you in order to get those things done. So how did you how did you make that switch? Because the first version of leadership that you described, the the thing about getting things done, I think is the mainstream version of leadership that a lot of us a lot of us see out there and is part of why many women see you know don't want to call themselves leaders. Leader leadership is almost kind of a dirty word for them. So how did you yeah. Um, make that switch from let me get things done to let me actually have relationships with people? Yeah, uh, I guess it was a long kind of journey. So I think back one of my one of my first leadership experiences that I think about a lot well failed leadership experiences was when I was an undergrad at Howard. I was a, in the School of Business and I was chosen to be a team leader and you're basically responsible for this group of new business school students, most of whom are freshmen, but you can also have transfer students, um, so people who are older than you even. And you track these students for, tw- for the whole um, semester and it's about 20 of them. And most of us even live in the same dorm with these students if you have a group of freshmen. And you meet with them every week, you help them prepare certain cases, presentations, you help them with life, like everything, right? And you have a corporate sponsor, so your corporate representative meets with you and helps you with presentations and go on different trips with them. And then at the end of the year, there's this huge award ceremony. And I was a team leader. Well, I met my best friend while serving as a team leader. Her name is Trevani. And my best friend was so good. Like, she called them her babies. They loved her. They showed up in her room at all day, all times of day. Um, they called her. Anything she needed them to get done, it, it looked like they just did it, right? Whereas my team, it always felt like pulling teeth. And it was so difficult to get them aligned on a certain goal and to execute. And at the end of the year, at this award ceremony, I think she got team leader of the year, or if she didn't, her team got team of the year. And my team mm. is sitting in the back. There's like 20 different teams maybe. And we got not one award. Not a single person on my team individually got an award. 
I didn't get an award and the team as a group didn't get one. And I remember being so devastated and not really understanding what happened, right? Mm-hmm. And as I went through my career, especially, so I started my career at Deloitte Consulting in management consulting, um, and then I switched into the nonprofit sector. I dealt a lot with, okay, well, how do I show up at work? Like, I'm a really high performer. People recognize that, but sometimes I'm just, I feel like I'm not really me and I have to be a version of myself. And as I went through my career, I kind of battled that and came to the conclusion before business school that really when I show up as my full self, I do my best work. And Mm. in choosing business schools, that was an important part of my process. Like I want to go somewhere where I can show up as myself so that I can grow into my best self, right? Mm -hmm. And I showed up at Berkeley with that intention, really. And I think I showed up saying, all right, I'm going to stretch myself. I didn't know that I was going to run for the type of positions I ran for, which were really visible. But I, I realized I had nothing to lose after the support of friends and my partner. And when I was in it, it was like, all right, well, just don't mess this up. Just do every day the best version of this that you can. And because at that point, I had built up some really great connections with people on campus. Um, when I needed help, and I didn't know what to do, I would just ask, you know, the administration, the staff, I would say, you know, this is the situation we're dealing with. I would engage people. I'm a very collaborative person by nature. And I would just bring people in. And that turned out to be an extremely effective way to lead. It was not my leadership theory or anything of that sort. It just, it just happened. Um, So I'd say it was a long, long process. And it was not until I got to the end of the two years and I looked back, having gotten recognition for some of the things that I did, that I realized, like, you know what, that was really because I was willing to, to show up as myself, even if mm-hmm. it meant that I failed. I was willing to get it wrong. Mm. So what does that look like on a daily basis, showing up as your authentic self? Yeah, I think mostly, like, on a very practical level, trying not to code switch, right? Like, Am I masking the types of things that I talk about? Or when somebody asks me how I'm doing, am I being honest if another black boy or black woman was just shot? You know, like these are things I struggled with a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Like invisibility of pain was probably my my most difficult part of my experience. Um, But even on other levels, like I enjoy dancing. I love dancing, right? And of course, business schools don't have the best type of DJs in terms of where I would spend my time. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I can dance if there's a beat. And Haas and a lot of business schools, dancing is a huge part of the experience. And so I would go and dance. And I made a lot of really great friends just with classmates who enjoyed being on the dance floor too. And so Mm -hmm. I felt like using the things that I really loved to make meaningful connections. Um, I like small gatherings. And so we had certain people, we would get together for book clubs and we would talk about books that we really liked or, you know, I'd have wine nights with some of the young, the black women who were at on campus. And my first year, there weren't that many, but the second year, there were five more who came. And so mm-hmm. creating smaller ways to engage with people and build deeper relationships was, was something that helped. And mm-hmm. how that shows up is when you're going through something, you're dealing with a problem, you have more people who are already in that circle willing to help you. Mm. Great. So let's, I kind of want to go back to this, this concept of not code switching, um, code switching for a lot of us. is kind of how we, um, create emotional and professional safety for ourselves. 
um, especially in places uh, like your MBA program where there aren't really that many other black women. Um, And so how did you make the choice to be your authentic self in that space? And, um, and how did you feel safe enough to do that? In the beginning, it was really hard. And the example that always comes to mind was, is um, when we were in our core classes, we had, you know, classes that everybody had to take there, like the foundation, finance, marketing, et cetera. Um, There were scenarios where I was uncomfortable with things that a professor had said. And I'm a very, like, vocal feminist. But in this circle, nobody knew me as that, right? Like, in D.C., nobody knew that I had done the types of work that I, the type of work that I had done with the Rape Crisis Center or facilitating a women's empowerment course. Like, people didn't know these things. So Mm -hmm. coming into this space and knowing how that showed up for me was really difficult. Um, And so sometimes things would be said in class. And I'm, like, inside just boiling. Like, somebody's not going to check that comment or is somebody going to share a different perspective? And then realizing I'm actually the only brown face in this room, I'm probably the only one who might share that perspective. And mm-hmm. I got to a point where I would say things sometimes. I'd be terrified that I would, be, I would sound like the angry black woman. Like, yeah. this was a constant anxiety, point of anxiety for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I met this guy in my class the first week of school, we were going to this um, orientation event, and I define, I'm, I'm an introvert. I'm very social. I'm very um, outgoing, but I'm very much an introvert. And so doing big social activities with 250 people, um, which is the size of my class, is mm-hmm. not my idea of how I like to spend my time. And mm-hmm. I sit next to this classmate who we're going to this event. We're excited about it because obviously we're excited about business school, but we're not excited about the type of event. And yeah. we find out that we're both introverts, and we both read this book called Quiet, the Power of Introverts by Susan yeah. King. Mm-hmm. And we end up just like spending this whole bus ride to this event talking about it. So he and I became really close and we were in the same cohort. And anytime I like mustered up the courage to say something that I thought would make me sound angry, at the end of the class, I would approach him and be like, did I sound like the angry black girl? And this is a white gay guy, right? So it's not somebody who even understood what I was really dealing with. But mm-hmm. he would always like, calm me down. He would always be like, no, actually what you said was really great. I'm glad you said it. Or, yeah, I didn't really get why you said that or whatever it was. And I think it was creating these people, these communities and like small, just connection points with people who made the space feel safer for me. That helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, it was, I mean, little things like I, I stopped straightening my hair a long time ago. I cut it all off while I was at Deloitte Consulting, showed up to a big meeting the next day and was like, I'm just going to do me. I, I pierced my nose while in corporate America. Like mm. those kinds of things I did a long time ago. But I think this is the first part of my life where I'm entering a completely new space as this version of me that people didn't know, you know, the, the straight hair Nikita or the person mm-hmm. who would put her hair in a bun for an interview kind of thing. And, like, mm-hmm. if I go on an interview or if I meet anybody, I fluff my fro out. Like, I wear the brightest colors. I wear lipstick because my <laughs> thing is, if you're going to hire me, if you're interested in working with me or whatever it is that we're there to do and you don't want it with the – you don't want to do it with the fullest version of me, then I don't want to be a part of it. That's, like, mm-hmm. the philosophy I rock with. And mm-hmm. every day it, it shows up differently, and sometimes I do it better than other days. Like, I still suffer from, you know – thoughts about respectability politics and whether or not I should show up to certain environments certain ways. Mm-hmm. But I try my best to, to feel like, all right, well, did I show up as me? Did I have that conversation? Was that an honest conversation? 
Um, and then if I didn't, because that happens a lot too, you know, you look back and you're like, why? That wasn't even me. Um, then the next time I, I try to do it and I try to be more conscious. Hmm. I mean, that, that's a really high bar to hold yourself to. But I think it's it's a really important one because you're right. If you don't really craft out, out those spaces for yourself, then you end up getting crushed by, yes. um, you know. People's as, versions as of you, you mama lord. Yep, yep. yep. So <laughs> don't want to be crushed by other people's, like, yeah, perceptions and definitions of you. Um, and that's a beautiful thing to be able to take into the, the business space. I think a lot of our our listeners would be grateful to hear that because I think we, a lot of us expect that, in, especially in corporate culture, that's the place where you cannot be your natural haired, bright color wearing, um, angry black woman, quote unquote. So, <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, I have a space of privilege in that California is a lot different than when I was in DC and being in the mm. Northeast and mm. even the corporate environment here, I work in a fairly conservative environment, um, mm-hmm. for tech, but you know, it, it is extremely progressive compared to the Northeast. I don't know. I would like to believe I'd be the exact same way anywhere that I am. But I do have the privilege of being in the Bay Area where people rock blue hair to their company meetings. You know what I mean? Like not mm-hmm. my company, but it is not <laughs> out here. Okay. So how do you, um, are you, are you finding that you're able to hold the same line um, at Cisco? Or are there ways in which you, um, since you mentioned it is a little bit of more of a conservative company, that you've had to kind of, uh, you know, walk walk a finer tightrope? I, again, am, am in a very unique position and probably an extremely privileged position um, that most people won't be in because I was hired by somebody who is, I consider a sponsor. So mm-hmm. he was a boss of mine back at Deloitte, um, wrote recommendation letter for me for business school and has been a very active um, mentor to me um, through the process in terms of he would check in and see how things were going. And he hired me to be his chief of staff um, after moving into this new role and we having a discussion about what he needed in his, in his new role. And mm-hmm. so joining a team where somebody already knows you and they know what you bring to the table, you're not earning their trust, allows you to be a lot more yourself from day one than I think mm-hmm. otherwise. And I think also he, he hired me at largely too, that he was looking for somebody who would be comfortable saying things that the average person wouldn't want to say to a VP. Like, I think that that's a really bad idea. Like he wanted somebody who would say something like that and who would give him honest feedback um, in reaction to scenarios. And I'm a pretty opinionated person and I'm very vocal in general. And having the ability to do that with a boss from day one is not something I've ever experienced up until now. Mm. That's amazing. So tell tell yeah. me more about this this concept of sponsorship versus mentorship because I think it's one that becomes a lot more crucial as you're as you're going through your life in the private sector. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't even remember where I first read it or heard about it, but I remember reading it and thinking, "Oh my God, that is the realest thing I've ever seen." In the sense that a mentor is somebody who you can ask him out for coffee. They can, you know, listen to everything that you're going through, probably offer you, offer you some advice, connect you with some other people who can help you, provide you with resources that get you where you want to go. But a sponsor may or may not be any of those things. The most important thing that a sponsor does is that he or she 
pulls you up or pulls you in whatever direction. They basically mm-hmm. create the momentum for your career, I guess, is how you can mm-hmm. think about it. And they're willing to use their social capital, their political capital to vouch for you to get to that step. And so mm-hmm. they may or may not be the person you call about your boss and a scenario that you're in and helping getting you advice. But what they will do is they know what you're capable of and they're willing to help put their reputation or whatever it is on the line to advocate for you. Mm-hmm. So the, were you very intentional about building this this um, current sponsorship relationship with your current boss? Or is no. this something that, that developed organically? It, I would say it, I have not developed any of my sponsorship type of roles or even really the great mentors I have. I think that they – I just got lucky. And mm-hmm. I know you, can, you can't say that, but I think it was just I was in the right place at the right time at the right company. Um, and most of my mentors and sponsors are actually from my experience at Deloitte, those first three years out of college, mm-hmm. those individuals that I worked for. And of course, a lot of the sponsorship and mentorship that they chose to, to engage in is a result of my performance, right? So it's not mm-hmm. complete luck. But right. compared to other analysts and other people in my shoes, I was very fortunate to have been placed on their projects. It was, you know, it's all about like being mm-hmm. available for a project at the right time. And mm-hmm. then I delivered. But I definitely did not even understand how to build mentorship or create sponsors at that stage in my career. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that, you know, I developed a really strong reputation where these individuals thought very highly of me. And even when I moved on in my career, I kept in touch by letting people know what I was up to. And they were always very willing to to support in whatever way that I had asked. And this particular um, boss of mine, he... I didn't even know that he would have been willing to write the recommendation letter, for instance. Like, I was asking the person below him if Ooh. he would he would be willing, right? So mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was having a conversation with one of the guys on the team um, about it. He was like, you know, you really should ask. Um, you should you should ask him to write it. And I was like, really? Like, I don't I didn't even think he noticed me. You know, like he was such mm. a senior person on this team that he came in and advised us and then swooped out and we did all the work because they, yeah. they work across so many projects. Um, so I was pretty much in shock that that was something he wanted to do. And then afterwards, he always made it clear that he was a very vocal supporter of mine. Oh, wow. Well, that's amazing. So how, yeah. what advice would you give um, your past self about um, or other women who want to be in your position about building these sponsorships um, in a more uh, intentional way? Or do you think like allowing the organic path, um, you know, pretty much just showing up and being your best self again, is that the best way to go about it? I don't know. Ah, that's such a good question. And I feel 100% unqualified to answer it. However, I'm opinionated, <laughs> so I'll give an opinion. Let's do I think it, yes. that, <laughs> I think that, it, you know, I don't think you can wait around for it um, because, I was very fortunate, but if that hadn't happened, I don't think I'd be sitting around waiting for somebody to, mm-hmm. to be my mentor or to sponsor me. Um, and I do actively seek people who I think are really dope. So, for instance, there's this woman, black woman, who just got promoted to to vice president at Cisco. And it was posted on a blog, and it was a huge event. Like, they, they surprised her with this promotion. Um, and it's extremely significant. Like, I think she told me, I met her for the first time last week, and I think she said she is the only black woman or person of color who is a vice president for an engineering team at Cisco. I think that's what she, mm. she said. 
but either way, like she's one of very few people of color in that role, right? And I remember reading it and thinking, oh my God, I have to meet this woman. And I was going to send her a cold, like just cold email. Um, and then I ended up talking to my boss's executive assistant who who's a black woman and she just like loved taking care of me. She was just like naming all these people I needed to meet. And I asked, she mentioned this woman and she ended up calling her to thank her for, to um, congratulate her, not thank her for her promotion because I notified her of the promotion. She hadn't even known. And then like 10 minutes later, the VP sent me an email saying, Hey, let's get together next next week. <clears throat> I'd love to meet you. Mm. And <clears throat> she put 45 minutes on her calendar, which at a v- as a VP who's new in her role, like That's I would never have expected that. Right. Mm-hmm. Very, very kind. Um, and then she sat in a room with me and we just chat about her experiences to date. And in the middle of that meeting, she asked, is there anything that you need from me? Is there anything that I can do for you? Which is the first time I've had somebody that senior who I'm like clearly just trying to, I'm fangirling all over, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've never had somebody ask me that. And I didn't have anything I needed from her. I just was like, you know, I just really want somebody that I can talk to about my career and how things are going here. And she was like, well, I can absolutely be that for you. And I think mm. being intentional about what you would like the relationship to be and then obviously doing the work to follow through on that is mm-hmm. important. But she may or may not ever become a sponsor. I don't know, right? I have no idea where our relationship may lead. But I know for a fact that as I go through my time at Cisco, that I will keep her up to date on what's going on with me. And if I have things that I could ask her for help, you know, knowing that it's a a reasonable request, I'll do so because I know that that builds a stronger connection between the two of us. And if there's ever anything that I think I can offer for her, I will always do that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And it's great that you've, um, A, seen it work the organic way and seen it work this, this really great intentional way as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because that whole theme of relationship building came up with your sponsorships and with your, your leadership. It's just kind of all over the place in your story, the importance of, of reaching out and building these relationships. Yeah. I never thought about it. Yeah. So uh, what is your, what's your leadership style? Um, We talked a little bit about you learning to be um, a more relational leader, but um, can you tell us more about the details of, um, how you how you tackle leadership especially in your current role yeah well I'll speak to how I did it in school just because I feel like in my current role it's still fairly new and my leadership Mm -hmm. is not the same like I really I'm I'm a person who gets things done on you know cross collab like collaboratively but cross-functionally for somebody more senior than me Mm -hmm. um Versus my time in business school, where I I served as the president of our MBA association, Mm -hmm. I was responsible for executing, you know, not executing, I was responsible for other people executing on their platforms and Mm -hmm. really facilitating anything that they needed. And I think, you know, it was a fascinating role because I was not responsible for the execution of of many things. Um, And unless I took them on, I didn't really execute on anything. I was responsible for being the tie between the school and the administration and all of those things. But my favorite part was really enabling other people to get their 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 work done and their vision, creating their helping them create their vision and execute on that vision. Mm -hmm. And day to day or week to week when we met, 
my leadership style was really about keeping tabs on how things are going, um, kind of creating an atmosphere where we're helping each other, asking questions, um, getting the input from others, um, and then supporting each other in a way that allows us to do all those things. But then when there's tough decisions, knowing when I just have to say, all right, well, this is where we move forward and how we're going to move forward. So I think the biggest part of my leadership that's natural is inclusivity in, mm. in how I engage people, what opinions I gather, um, the facts, the data. The hardest part of, of leadership for me was knowing that at the end of the day, I still had to make a call and it probably wasn't going to make everyone happy and it probably wasn't going to fit the needs of everybody in that community, but it was still the best case scenario, or I firmly mm -hmm. believed it to be at least, and that I had to, to basically stand behind that decision. Mm -hmm. And I had to make people feel like, you know, I was thoughtful, I included them, I reviewed all of the relevant, you know, data, facts for that decision and that I made the best call that I could. And mm. that was hard. That was very hard. So that's that's a part of leadership that I'm still learning. So, so how did you, um, and this is probably maybe the part you're still learning, but how do you get the confidence, um, the confidence piece in being able to just make that last call, regardless of um, what everyone's opinions are on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm a person, and I think a lot of women have this problem. Mm -hmm. I know I do, where you, you want to be liked by everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the last of five girls, and I'm the first generation American in my family, and I just have this all the anxiety to please. Like, I just want everybody to be happy all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point in my leadership role, I had to just be like, it's okay if people don't like me because liking me is not required to respect me. Mm -hmm. And there were times I just had to, like, actually say it to myself you know like it's okay if I'm walking around campus and somebody gives me the side eye it doesn't mean they don't respect me they might not even know what just happened I just need to be like it's all right you have your friends you have your people and even when they don't care about you know or care for the decision you made they still love you and it's like consciously reminding yourself that respect and being liked are two separate things yeah definitely you know and I think uh there's the Rachel Simmons wrote this book called Curse of the Good Girl, and it's mostly geared towards um, parents raising adolescent girls. But I think it's also really um, there are a lot there are a lot of really juicy nuggets in there for for women as well as we're thinking about leadership. But part of one of the points that she raises is that most of the skills that have made us really great students, um, you know, the desire to kind of make sure you're you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and and, you know, pleasing your parents, pleasing the professors, pleasing um, pretty much anyone out there who's got some requirement, you know, that we're trained is you're, if you're going to be a good student, you've got to be pleasing, um, especially mm -hmm. as, as females. Then you switch into, you know, a leadership position and all of a sudden the, the, the skills that you needed to be successful as a student are actually getting in the way of you being a good leader. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like Absolutely. there was, you know, in your experience as well, like this need to kind of dismantle some of that, some of that people pleasing um, to get into, to be able to fully step into your, your, um, your leader self. Absolutely. And, you know, you made me think of another piece. You also have to like step away from 
the student, like perfect A student piece and, and the analysis paralysis that comes from that too. Like, mm. I, do I have all the facts? Do I have all the data? Do I know everything there is to know about this, this situation? And you, you become, you find yourself against the wall because you have so much time to make the right call, right? And you don't have all day. And you mm-hmm. may not have even more than a few hours to just send a communication that addresses a situation or to, you know, have the right information or um, email sent out for a meeting that's happening. Like all these things have time constraints and you have to be comfortable saying, all right, well, I looked up and I reviewed everything that I could in the time that I had for myself and this is what we're going to do. And you know what? Nobody's going to die if it's the wrong decision. Like nobody's <laughs> going to die. We're not saving the world here. Right, 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 right. Um, and it's, it's, it's always, it's, it's always so important to remember, because sometimes that anxiety can feel like you're on the brink of death. Um, yes, that that something is dying. If you um, receive that email, that's like, wait a minute, I can't believe you made this decision. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it does. It's really funny how your brain will trick you into believing like, I'm having a near death experience. And then over and over again, you just you, you step out on, on faith, but not so much faith, but, you know, on trusting your competency and then realizing like, wait a minute, like I didn't die. Um, mm-hmm. I got negative feedback and I didn't away. Right. And then um, most and of it, the time what ends up happening is uh, people thank you and you're just like, wait, you like that? <laughs> you thought right? it was good? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. funny because for <laughs> as many critics as you have, you probably have as, you know, as many supporters. Um, and that that one critic is not is not really speaking for the whole group. Yep, absolutely. So how did you know, given given um, how tough all this this leadership stuff has been? Um, how did you know that you wanted to be a leader? How did you know that that was going to be part of your career path? <laughs> oh, man, I don't think I ever thought about it. I, I think back to my childhood and I've always been very, very, very bossy like so bossy (laughs) to the point where I lost friends because I was so bossy. And I remember being sad probably for like a year or two in middle school, you know, middle school sucks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I kind of just found myself in high school um, taking advantage of leadership, like basically finding channels for my bossiness. Right. So like Mm -hmm. in high school, some friends and I, we were part of creating a diversity week and our white very white prep high school in georgetown um so found leadership roles in like our black women society that was our affinity club in college i took on leadership roles again very unsuccessful ones included um where my bossiness was not real leadership right but i didn't know that Mm -hmm. then Mm-hmm. And visit in post undergrad and Deloitte, I did a lot of leadership within even my analyst community. Um, did a lot of led a lot of community service work for Deloitte at my level, and then just everywhere I went, I just found channels for you know my very entrepreneurial spirit, which doesn't really want to run its own organization. It just wants to be able to drive really exciting things within organizations. I've always mm-hmm. found outlets for that, and mm-hmm. so. I think going into business school and then taking on the president role for the first time in my life, I was like, you know what? I'd make a really good CEO. And I just said mm. it. I let myself just say it. And it's like, maybe I'll get a role as a CEO and I'll fuck it up royally. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. Sorry. Yes, to? you are. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> 
like maybe I'll get a, ro- a role as a CEO one day and, you know, fuck it up royally, or maybe I'll be wildly successful, but I'm okay with not knowing how to do it perfectly because at the end of the day, like if I say that I want to do these things and I want to grow and I want to have impact, I have to be willing to like not be perfect at it. And that's a really scary thing. But mm-hmm. the only way to really impact the world the way I think it needs to be changed is to be willing to step up into the leadership role and not wait for somebody else to do it. And I know that I have the skills. Um, I know that I have, you know, the training, I have the kind of experiences that set me up to do that well. And really the only thing left is my willingness to keep growing and stretching and putting myself in those positions. Mm -hmm. So how did you know that you were building the right set of skills? Where were you, um, Mm. you know, it sounds like you were already on that path prior to to, uh, going into business school. Yeah. So you know, you know, what skills have been the most useful for you? And, and, and how did you know that you were getting to the point where the CEO path is, is what the one you wanted to be on? Yeah, so I, I took a management consulting job out of undergrad for the reason why most people do like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And people say it's a great stepping stone to everything else, right? Like I took mm-hmm. it for that reason. And I remember three years later, I'm like, or two years later, because it was before I actually left, I'm like thinking about what is it that I want to do after this job? I need to do something that's more impactful in society. I need to have all these things that I think have to be perfect by 25, of course, because that's what you think at that point. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, and I worked with, I think I called a coach because I was like, I have no skills. I don't, I literally have no skills because as a consultant at that time, all I did was make PowerPoints and <laughs> take notes for a bunch of meetings. At least that's how I perceived it, right? That was mm-hmm. how I saw what I did. And it wasn't until I left and I worked in the nonprofit sector in a couple different jobs, one really, really crappy, and I quit after a year. So I learned a lot about failure and toxic cultures. And then Mm -hmm. working for another one um, that was very fun. I was very good at what I did. I had meaningful impact in in what um, I was set up to do. Um, I realized that I had gotten all of these very, very soft soft skills in consulting, Um, that I undervalued. And Mm. yes, I was very analytical because yes, I had to analyze data. And yes, I had to be able to to do research and all those things that you can put on a resume. But the best things that I got from those experiences, especially the failed job, um, the job that I quit, was my ability to understand and kind of assess different situations and look at different problems and figure out what the next steps are. Like, how do we move from that problem? And I think when you're trained as a consultant, it's like a running joke, you know, like even my partner, she's like, you cannot project manage my life. Sometimes I, my brain just works that way constantly. And <laughs> right. It's, it's like this undervalued thing um, that I, I didn't even, I didn't understand this, this, this strength until I left that world. And I don't think it was until probably I got to business school, I could put it completely in perspective and understand how, that was such a valuable asset for leadership. Mm. And it's great to, um, it's funny how we, we initially talked about like business school as being the place where you started to learn that you should be your authentic um, black, queer, natural haired self. But it sounds like it's also <laughs> the place where you also learned you could be your, your leader project managing self as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm around a type like, perfect straight A students, you know, people who've never failed at anything in life constantly are 
all day. And for the first time, the person who sits at the table with a study group and wants to create a project plan isn't the weirdest person in, in the group, right? Like the person who <laughs> wants to micromanage every detail and how we're going to get it done and who's going to own what. Like that's a natural conversation. Oh, it was so freeing. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, you know, I think there aren't enough spaces um, for for us as a, a, a community of color to really honor the women in our community who do like to be the project management bossy person. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think we we do honor, you know, kind of the more matriarchal people in our uh, community who want to be more like activist leaders, but to be the person who's really just um, getting everything down on paper and who's got the Excel spreadsheet and is, you know, delegating tasks, there's definitely such an important role for, for women like you in our community as well. That's such a great point. I think about the women in my family who actually run things. Yeah. And they're often the ones who are underappreciated because they're the ones making sure that people show up to the event with food at the right time. And we have the utensils. (laughs) And it's like, you don't, I don't think it, it probably wasn't until like my mid twenties and later I started to see how much work they actually do and start to dread probably ending up that person. Cause me and another cousin of mine, um, we're both the same age and I'm in the U S and she's in Barbados. We talk about how we're going to end up being those two people in our geographies for our family. And we're like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, we don't even know where we start to learn because if we don't do it, no one else is going to, cause we're the A type planners, right. keep everything together. <laughs> and you know, and it's women like you who are going to understand all the different pieces that need to come together. Cause I think a lot of people just think like family events just happen. And it's like, no, 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 no. Someone actually remembered we needed spoons and then had the like, you know, yeah. tactful conversation with that person about how they need to bring <laughs> spoons this year and not forget them. Yeah. Yes. Um, so there's definitely, you know, an amazing form of, of leadership that starts that starts there that that we're not always valuing. I love that you said that. I love the family analogy. Yeah, totally. Because I feel like that's where my first models of leadership came from, you know. Um, mm-hmm. My mom is most, one of the most wonderful leaders that I know, but you would never know it. Um, like understated. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, how do you, uh, how did you decide? I mean, going back to what you were saying about your, you had these nonprofit experiences, but also these corporate experiences. Um, what, how did you decide that you wanted to be a leader in the private sector versus, you know, thinking about moving forward in the nonprofit world, especially since you care so much about social impact? Yeah. Um, well, part of it was my first job in the nonprofit sector was extremely demoralizing, to say the mm. least. Um, and I saw how much potential that organization had for impact, but how much it would never, how it would never get there because of the, the leadership and the the culture of the organization, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the other part of it, I was in a fellowship um, called Pro Inspire, and they help business professionals transition into the nonprofit sector. And so I was in a cohort of people who were transitioning into the sector for the first time from the private sector. So it was great because you got a lot of different perspectives on people's experiences. A lot, most of whom who had, most of whom had great experiences. So mine was very rare to the point where. Um, I got great coaching and partnership from the fellowship itself during that year. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I quit, that was with their support. So it was great to have the context of the broader nonprofit space and what other organizations are doing. But I think at the end of the day, 
I just felt like we were never going to get to a place where these organizations could scale what they were doing and have the broad impact that business actually could if it Hmm. won first and foremost, just did the right thing, right? Like if we paid people living wages and we gave people benefits and we did all of these things that are just a good corporate citizen would do, then half of these problems in society, half these nonprofits wouldn't even need to exist. We know that. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. even more, if we were active contributors to society, which is a whole other philosophical conversation around what the purpose of business is. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you were to ever get to that stage, then the scale at which you can have an impact is huge. Like Walmart, bad company by most people's standards, right? But if Walmart does like 1% of its, you know, supply chain purchasing decisions just differently, it changes communities, right? Like you can hate them, but if they decide that they want to only support certain kinds of businesses for this product or they start to buy socially or um, environmentally sustainable products, it just changes everything. And so you can have a nonprofit working for that, begging for money, spending most of their time begging for money, underpaying their people who now are living below poverty line and all these things. Or you could go to a company and hope that there's enough people who are willing to go into the private sector to sit at the table and make those kinds of decisions. And, you know, I feel like there's a huge moment. There's so much momentum right now, and there's a huge transformation that's underway in the private sector. I think it's at the very, very beginning. Um, and, of course, it's not altruistic. Like, it is very much profit-driven, which excites me even more, because mm-hmm. how do you make – it's like a puzzle. How do you convince people to do something for multiple reasons? Um, and I just decided I wanted to be a part of that because it was going to be huge. It was going to be more impactful than I think most nonprofit organizations will ever financially be able to, to have impact. Um, Mm -hmm. And three, I mean, honestly, it's just, I love business. So I just missed it while I was in the nonprofit sector. Mm. What's the aspect of, of, of business that you think is the most promising in terms of bringing in this social impact? Cause it's, um, you know, there, there are still entrepreneurs out there who have businesses that intentionally are making an impact and also intentionally making a profit. But it it sounds like Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not thinking of social impact in that way. No, I'm not interested in social entrepreneurship, which I think is a a really dope space. It's just very different. Um, And again, it still is also a very small scale. Like it's Mm -hmm. very, it's hard to, to scale um, their impact right now because they're they're just like every other entrepreneur starting up and they're trying to figure out things. Mm -hmm. I am most excited about the Fortune 100 companies because I think that they lead the way in terms of what other companies do, right? So Mm -hmm. if if you're a Fortune 100 company and you make a decision, then to remain competitive in a specific marketplace, other businesses have to follow. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you look at the whole minimum wage debate, and obviously that was led by grassroots organizers and nonprofits. Like that's, I still think that the nonprofit world and even the even government, local, state, and federal government play a role in all of this. I think we all have to work together, um, and, and we play different types of roles in making it happen. So you look at the minimum wage debate and how that's moved forward. I think if certain companies like Walmart and all the others who decided to say, all right, we're, we're going to start to raise, raise our minimum wages, even if you don't agree with how they did it, if they hadn't done it, other companies would not have started to follow suit. Mm-hmm. Because 
if if these big you know huge companies do it then i have to now consider it otherwise i'm going to lose talent because people are mm-hmm. going to obviously go work where they're going to get paid better mm-hmm. well it's it's kind of like a circular um well, maybe not circular, but but it's it's all different pieces of the same pie, it sounds like. I mean, exactly. it's so important for grassroots organize, organizers to do their work and nonprofit organizations to do that work to, to bring that conversation to the forefront. And then it's important exactly. for us to also have people in the private sector who are going to who are going to respond um, and actually and and make a change. That's that. I mean, as you're saying, it's, it's definitely a lot more scalable. Yep. And in a perfect world, right? Like if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm an executive and I'm sitting at a table and we're about to I don't know, go build a new plant in XYZ place, then hopefully you have socially conscious people at that table who are thinking about the issues that might be present in that community or mm-hmm. who are thinking about what might come up. So you're not waiting for a bunch of grassroots organizers to protest in front of your office space, right? Like mm-hmm. that's so reactive. If you were actually working in collaboration with the community, then you probably would never reach that problem, right? And that's where mm-hmm. nonprofits have a huge role to play because they are great, you know, they build community and they help um, kind of bring all of those perspectives to the forefront. And so nonprofits obviously do work a lot with corporations, but if mm-hmm. if that was a better alliance across the board, then probably a lot of these things wouldn't even be issues. Yeah, but that's why it's so important to have women like you who are, um, who are at that table having that conversation um, and who are willing to kind of play the long game of, you know, uh, management consulting, then business school, then, um, you know, moving my way up the ladder in a private corporation um, so that when those decisions are being made, that there's someone at the table who, who understands those perspectives. That's my hope. That is my goal, girl. <laughs> talk talk a little bit more about about your goal. What do you? <laughs> to, how do you? To how rush do you it. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't. I don't even know. So I'm very I'm very um, into obviously social impact and the intersection of that with business. And before I went to business school, I read a book called um, Conscious Capitalism. It's written by the CEO of Whole Foods and. Mm-hmm. it's really just about what it means to be a conscious organization um, or company. And of course you've got all these, you've just got all this momentum. You've got B Corps and you've got all these d- different legal structures now for businesses to um, incorporate themselves without it being focused solely on profit. But mm-hmm. there also are a lot of debates and conversations about whether or not a public company can put social good above um, shareholders, because if it is in the best interest of shareholders, then how could you argue that it's not, you know, important to focus on the community? Anyways, all of that fascinates me, and I love companies like um, Patagonia and REI, for instance. They're, they're mm-hmm. just like a little bit more environmentally friendly. That's the obvious tier. Um, and so I would love to lead a company like that one day. Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe more importantly, be a part of a company that is really seeking to transform the way it operates in the world and be a part mm-hmm. of that transformation. Mm. Got it. And like being at the helm of like making those making those turns towards um, being more impactful in the in the community. Yeah, and and all while making money. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, 
like, of course, the trade-offs between the two, I can debate people for hours about what that looks like. And, you know, I don't even know myself because I haven't been privy to a lot of those decisions so senior in large companies. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that it would be, one, a lot of fun, but I also think it would be, I think it's important that there are more people like me who want to ride, you know, the wave um, towards this transformation across corporate America and who are willing and excited about being in leadership roles as it's happening. Cause I don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think the making money part though is important. I think there it definitely, um, you know, I, I, I do believe that sometimes the aversion that our community has to folks who, who want to earn money is, is, is sometimes a way that we participate in our own oppression right? Um, that Ooh, it yeah. is okay for, um, it is okay to say that you want money. It is okay for you to say that you want financial abundance, just like you want any other type of abundance in your life. Um, and sometimes we keep ourselves out of certain spaces by saying, well, you're not authentic, or you're not down for the cause if you're, if, you know, financial abundance is really important for you. And I think that's, um, in some ways, internalized oppression. I, oh my God. So I'm so glad you said that because when I left Deloitte, I took a pay cut to work in the nonprofit sector and, you know, my parents freaked out. Like that was a huge thing because everything that they worked for was for me to not take pay cuts. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember after my first year or two thinking, I don't even understand, like I was working, the first organization I worked at was focused on underserved entrepreneurs and access to, it was microfinance. Mm -hmm. And I would look at the applications for people who are eligible for these services. And I realized that I was eligible for it. And yeah. it just like blew my mind. And this realization mm -hmm. that like, you can't save the world by being poor. Mm -hmm. You just, it's, I'm not enabling the type of transformation in my community by taking a job that one, I felt like I had less I didn't really have any meaningful impact on anything. And mm. two, I can't, I can't live my life and kind of maintain the type of balance that I want to have. I can't donate and give to the types of things that I think are important. You know, like if you're still mm -hmm. not able to do any of those things, then what, what's the point? Now, there are people who do work jobs by choice where they're paid, you know, a lot lower, but they are able to have the kind of impact and meaning that they want. But the mm -hmm. idea that you shouldn't take a job that pays you a whole lot, you know, because you feel this sense of guilt is yeah. really tough because I think that can be ingrained in in our community and the conversations within social, you know, the social impact and social um, in the nonprofit space. I heard, You hear a lot of that. And it's like yeah. I had to get over that so I didn't feel guilt about, you know, one, how much you're paying for an MBA program, which is ridiculous, right? And then two, mm -hmm. the type of salaries that you're going to make when you come out, like, getting rid of that guilt, shedding that guilt is, is tough. Right. And knowing how to be a part of the community when you're earning that much money, too. It's, it's almost like kind of having to readjust your place in, in the community of people of color or first generation Americans is, um, you know, kind of making peace with, with that new place. Um, yep. And I think it, it's kind of like that. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's something that I struggle a lot with right now that like it's a it's a type of privilege I've never it's privilege that I've never had experience with. And it's it's weird having the kind of access and socioeconomic privilege that I have now and 
trying to figure out exactly what do you do with it that's responsible, especially when you're working in tech in mm-hmm. Oakland. Like, mm. it is the epicenter of all of these conversations around income inequality. And here I am, a black woman who's contributing to all of that. That is a very mm-hmm. difficult thing that I have not figured out how to manage yet or what that means yet. Definitely. I mean, I think sometimes for me, I feel like it's, um, you know, it's 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 almost similar to the conversation of can a person be racist? It's like, can a black person be a gentrifier? Um, mm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because we, uh, there is a new class of us who are who are coming up, and maybe not new, um, but they're growing for sure. Yeah, definitely, right? So, um, upper middle class Black people moving into these areas that, um, you know, lower class uh, folks from a lower SES have been have been pushed out of, and being able to take the privileges of the like, oh, we like the new Whole Foods, or I like the fact that there's a new like. Um, grass-fed hamburger joint, yep. you know, two blocks down the street. Yep. Um, and that, that that person who's moving in, the, like, young professional building their um, family and career in this new place is not always a white face. And what, is that, what does that mean? Um, and I have no idea what the answers are. But what I do know is that acting as though our freedom as a people comes from never having people Access from our community to have to grapple with yeah, access to that those things or have to grapple with those questions. Um, mm. That I think is kind of um, that's a fallacy, right? Like there, yeah, we have to allow our communities to grow in ways that are new and uncomfortable for us. If if yep. we really if we're really dedicated to this idea of freedom, um, I've never thought about it that way. I love that. That's a big <laughs> um, big question to grapple with that we can't answer in the podcast, sadly. Um, but I, um, and I could continue this conversation forever. Um, but I, I just want to thank you so much, Nikita, for coming on and, and for being willing to be open and transparent about your, your journey in business and, and the, the, the privilege that you, um, proudly own and sometimes grapple with. (laughs) Yeah. Mostly grapple with. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so where can, um, our listeners find out more about you? Yeah. What's your online space? I'm pretty active on Twitter, Nikita T. Mitchell. Um, Mm -hmm. and my website, I have a blog that I less frequently write up on, but I, um, I am hoping to get back to it before business school. Mm -hmm. I wrote quite a bit. And so I'm hoping to start to write more about my journey. Um, and some of these things that I'm grappling with more regularly. So that's Nikita T. Mitchell.com. Awesome. And I, I totally want to put another plug in there for your blog because I, um, I appreciate just the realness of the stuff that you've posted and you've posted a little bit about um, just the anxiety and the fears that come along with being in yeah. leadership. That I think it's, it's so important for, um, you know, women like us to, to know that other people are, are doing this work, even when it's scary. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And it reminds me, actually, I wrote a post about that exact topic that we discussed mm-hmm. on being liked. And I had this horrible dream um, at the end of my first semester of leadership that, like, I lost all of my friends. And I woke up terrified mm-hmm. and was like, oh, they're still there. I'm okay. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yes, big plug, everyone. Check out the blog. And there will be a link to Nikita's um, website and blog uh, in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Black Female Leaders Podcast. 
be sure to support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. You can find links to all the resources mentioned in this podcast by taking a look at the episode description. 